All right, so let's uh, begin by, uh, with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the fellowship that we have in your son. We thank you for all the churches in town that know and preach your gospel, and we pray that you'll be with them today. Be with us and help me to preach your word in a way that will um, edify the congregation here this morning. In your son's name, amen. So the sermon today is on some of what I like to call the blessed commands of Scripture. The text is Philippians 4, verses 4 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say, rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. So I wanted to speak about this passage today because it was one of the most formative passages in my own um, spiritual development. Um, I heard a lot of instruction on it when I was in high school from my grandfather and from my father. And it's been more of a measurable benefit in my life than just about anything else. So I had obviously heard these commands that you hear in this passage from the time I was a kid. And I suspect that many of you, if you grew up in a Christian home, did so as well. But they were often expressed, not by my parents, but by others in sort of a nagging or a tut-tut fashion. You're some truculent little kid um, complaining about your circumstances and someone says, "Uh, uh-uh-uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And it's just irritating, especially when you don't want to be convicted of your sin. So I resented that instruction for years and it just seemed like this burden, this weight of commands above me. But my grandfather helped me to understand a very simple argument for how you should treat these commands. And that's basically the idea that if God says you have to do it, then you can do it. If God expects you to do these things, he will give you the power to do them. And if he will give you the power to do them, then they don't need to stand as a list of accusations against you, as a list of obligations you can't meet. Instead, they stand as promises of what life in him is like. The joyful life that Paul is describing in this passage is sort of a zero-calorie free free delight that we can experience. And the only question that we have is whether you actually want it. So that's what I'd like to start with today. Why wouldn't we want this? Let's meditate on what it would look like to live a life that follows these commands. Constant rejoicing, no anxiety, thinking about good things, content, and able to do anything in Christ. Because if you're not enjoying and obeying, you're taking less than what is on offer from God. It's like you are leaving money on the table. It's like you are refusing a cure that's free for a terminal disease. So I want to discuss three things about these blessed commands today. The first is the desire for these commands. The second is the duty of these commands. 
And third is the power to obey. So first the desire, then the duty, and last the power to obey. But before we jump in, just a little bit of context about this passage in Philippians. This comes at the the close of Paul's letter. And his letter to the Philippians is one that's written to a church that's basically doing well. It's healthy and in order. It's not like the Corinthian church where Paul has to say, hey, by the way, don't sleep with your father's wife or be cool with other people who do. Or the Galatians where he's saying, um, why are you going back to the law that Christ was here to set you free from? Instead, this is a church that's basically onward and upward toward more joyful and deeper understanding of their call in Christ. And Paul's not writing this letter from a palace or from a church or even from uh, somewhere on the road. He's writing it from prison. And even though he's in prison, he is rejoicing at the effect on the gospel that is, that's been made by the fact that he is in prison for Christ. And then after some of the bigger picture theological instruction at the beginning of Philippians, he starts drilling down into the how shall we then live questions at the end. So with that in mind, let's talk about the desire of the commands. And when we think of desire, we often think of of sinful desire. It's sort of a raging force inside of us that we have to suppress. But the righteousness of any desire isn't about um, the desire itself, but rather about what its object. What are you desiring? And I think there's really no better expression of that concept of desire for righteousness than what what C.S. Lewis says at the beginning of The Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think when we look at this passage, we are far too easily pleased. I've talked to many professing Christians about this passage, and they actually try to argue out of it as they're trying to avoid joy, contentment, gentleness, peace, because they actually want to be anxious and dwell on bad things. So let's take a minute and meditate on what your life would look like if you followed these commands. There's five commandments in this passage. There's rejoice, let all men know your forbearance, have no anxiety, think about these things, and then to imitate Paul. So let's take them each in turn. First, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, to rejoice means to feel and to show great joy. Um, there's often a distinction that people will make. They'll say, well, happiness is different than joy. And you know, God tells you to be joyful, but he doesn't tell you to be happy. Well, and I think I've probably even made that argument in conversations before, and if I did, I'm sorry, because I don't think it's right. Um, I think what's, what's true is happiness is real, or joy is really an exalted form of happiness. And to rejoice in something is to have a great exaltation in that happiness. So joy, if anything, is an extremely amplified happiness. And when you realize that, you realize that our God commands us to be happy. And what a good fortune it is that we are quite literally commanded to be happy. Now, what's the ground of our happiness? He doesn't say, rejoice in your money always, again, I will say rejoice, or rejoice in your good looks always, again, I will say rejoice. No, it's rejoice in the Lord always. We're called to a life where the constant baseline of our heart is joy, ever increasing, about what we have already been given in Christ and what's been promised to us in the future. And the command is always, no matter the circumstances, Because what we have in God gives us a happiness that transcends any circumstances we might suffer um, in the short term. 
That's why Paul says in the passage before this one, in Philippians chapter three, he says that he counts everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, that if possible, he might attain the resurrection of the dead. And Paul had an awful lot to give up. He had privileged birth, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, he was a Pharisee, he was righteous, he was well-respected, he persecuted the church, he did what everyone expected him to do. And he gave up all that standing because he knew of the truth of what God had given him, and he knew of the truth of what God had promised him in the life to come. And he, he essentially put it on a scale where he said, I'm, I'm gonna weigh these things against each other, and what I've been given, and what I've been promised by God is so great and so immeasurable that it's not possible to put anything on the other side of the scale that could outweigh it. It's not even an inquiry that you should even bother worth making because it, it outweighs it by such a huge magnitude. And if that was something that we really believed about our lives, the way Paul believed it, I think it would be obvious why we should have this joy. It would be obvious why we should be constantly feeling great because we knew that none of these short-term things that can happen to our bodies um, ultimately matter in the end. They don't derail us. And there may be real and genuine causes for unhappiness in your life. You know, maybe you don't have the job that you want, no one appreciates your skills, or the job that you have doesn't pay enough. It might be that you've got a chronic health condition, or even worse, you know, we heard about acute health conditions that take people out of life, you know, suddenly and unexpectedly. It might be relational problems. You're single and you can't find someone um, that's a suitable mate, or you keep having your heart broken, or you're married and your spouse needs to pay more attention to Ephesians 5. Maybe your kids are little and they're brats, or maybe they're old and they're fools. Whatever your set of unhappiness is in your life, there's no conceivable way that they actually outweigh what you have in Christ. Because look at what Paul had. Paul gave up everything that he had in this world and instead got beaten, shipwrecked, imprisoned, hungry, um, disrespected, shamed everywhere he went, and then ultimately died for the faith. And so if Paul was able to weigh those things and say that present suffering isn't worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed, then whatever present suffering you have in your life is certainly not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. So let's look at the second commandment here. Paul says, let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Now, forbearance is a concept that we don't really say that often in English, and frankly, it doesn't seem like they even said it that often in Greek because um, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Um, it's also translated elsewhere as gentleness, and I think that the King James Version has it as, as moderation. Let your moderation be known to all. Forbearance as, as a legal concept is, it's about when you have rights, but you refrain from asserting them. Like if, if, uh, if someone owes you a lot of money, and they're supposed to pay it back in a certain time, and you decline to collect, that's forbearance of the debt. So that's essentially what, what Paul is telling us that we ought to be do doing here. And not only that we should be doing it, but that it should be known to all. It should be apparent to everyone that we're doing this. I'd like you to think about what a relief it would be if you could be forbearing in your life. Because we get stressed and angry all the time because we see that our life is not going the way we expected it to. We've been sold a set of promises by the American dream and for Christian families that if you do right and um, you stay married, you know, things are gonna go basically well for you. And yet we often see that we did those things and it's still not turning out the way we expected to. And we can either choose to lash out at the people that we think are responsible for things not going the way we want to, or we can try to bottle it up and just 
end up being frustrated on the inside about it. But what Paul's saying is instead of you know, holding those debts out against other people for their failings, he says you should forbear. You should be gentle. You should forgive. Keep no record of wrongs, as Paul says in his definition of love in 1 Corinthians. And particularly as Americans, this is a hard concept for us because we, we think about our rights all the time. Um, you know, maybe you're, you're thinking about the, the rights that we have to our, our Christian heritage and we've got to stand up for it. Or you think that your rights as a husband or as a wife and your spouse is not respecting you and you want to insist that they give me my due, give me what I'm owed. But Paul doesn't say, let all men know your rights or let all men know your views or even let all men know that they can take your gun when they pry it from your cold, dead hands. He says, let all men know your forbearance. Certainly, this was the example of Paul, but even more so of Christ. Do you think that Christ had the right to destroy every person who mocked him and nailed him to the cross? Do you think he had the right to make them pay for, with their lives for what they so unjustly did to the maker of the universe? But instead of doing so, he forbore. And he was lifted up on the cross so that all men would know that he forbore. Instead, he gently accepted the undeserved shame on him because he loved them. And if he was able to make that great sacrifice on our behalf, enduring the cross, despising the shame, we ought to be able to make the same sacrifice to others and forbear from insisting on our rights. And if you're able to do so, it'll give you an immeasurable peace that you don't have to worry about your rights all the time. So let's take the next command. This is one of, one of the most famous here. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul is in prison here, and he's telling us with our set of first world problems that we're not supposed to be anxious. Now, anxiety is pervasive. Even here in the West, where we enjoy a higher standard of material success um, than has ever occurred in the course of human history, anxiety is still pervasive. And why is that? I think it's because the things that we still feel matter most fundamentally to us are uncertain and they're out of our control. And so we fret and we strain about it as though worrying could change one hair on our heads, as Christ says, where we try to medicate, whether it's with alcohol or whether it's actual, actually with prescription medications that are supposed to take away our anxiety. It's like we're looking you know, on Facebook for the one ridiculously easy trick that the internet ads offer is gonna free us from these things. But we shouldn't be surprised that that ridiculously easy trick doesn't work. I'd like you to think for a minute about what it would be like to be freed from the anxiety that you may suffer under. Paul describes a chain of reasoning that can take you there. He describes a chain of reasoning from the temptation to anxiety that leads to peace because anxiety and peace are opposites. They are mutually exclusive. The Greek word that Paul uses for anxiety is the same word that, um, that Christ uses for, for worry when he talks about how we shouldn't worry about our life because God takes care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. And so Paul tells us here what to do when we're tempted to be anxious. As I, as I mentioned before, you're anxious about something when it's out of your control and it's important to you and you don't know what's gonna happen to it. So what Paul says you're supposed to do first is you look to the one who is in control. Let your requests be made known to God. And he describes the spirit in which you're to make that request. He says you do it with thanksgiving. Anxiety comes when you're thinking about the difference in your life between what you want and what you don't have, and it's out of your control. 
and that produces stress. Thanksgiving is a completely different outset, uh, sorry, outlook. Thanksgiving is thinking about what do you deserve? That's the baseline. What you deserve, what you came into the world with, what you offered, what you were entitled to, that's nothing. And Thanksgiving compares what you deserve to what you have. And inevitably, that's gonna be a positive comparison and something for you to look to God to from what he has given you and thank him. And what's the promised answer to our requests if we present them to God with thanksgiving? Does he say that we'll receive what we ask him? No. In fact, we'll receive something that's much better. We'll receive peace, relief from our anxieties. No more sleepless nights, no more frantic days. God wants you in those times to turn to him with gratitude for what you have, to ask him about what you want and need. And whether you get what you want is uncertain, but you will get what you need, which is peace. And it's a deep peace. It's one that passes all understanding. You cannot even believe how peaceful it is because you are anchored to Christ with your heart and mind in the midst of this storm. Your heart is felt, held fast to him because you know that he and not you is in control. And your mind clings to him too so that you can think correctly about this world. And how you think about the world is exactly what Paul addresses in the next command here. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our lives, as we know, are filled with a lot of awful things, and we, off, we may think that we have to think about them or dwell on them. Whether it's divorce, abortion, bills, taxes, racism, sickness, sorrow, death, disease, God knows that these things are awful. He knows that they're awful because he didn't make the world to include them. We brought them into the world through our sin. Every one of us has contributed to it. And God wants us instead, having redeemed us from the sin that we've cursed the world with, he wants us to meditate on what's good. Um, Manisha said, and she's, she's not the Bible, but I think she's right on this point. She says that, that God knows that the natural disposition of our hearts is to focus on what's broken, what's wrong, what's inadequate. And as a mercy to us, he directs us instead to focus on the positive. Because if you're dwelling on the negative, you're going to have a hard time obeying these other commands. If you're dwelling on the negative, you're going to have a hard time rejoicing. You're going to have a hard time um, being free from anxiety. You're going to have a hard time forbearing when someone takes away your rights. But if you're dwelling on the positive, that's going to be something that's, that's much easier to do. So I'd like you to think about where does your mind go as a default when it's idle? When you're you know, waiting at the, at the post office or the doctor's office and you pick out your phone and you have a minute to Google something, what do you start Googling? Are you thinking about the lies of the world? That your looks and your money and your health and your, are really what matter? Are you obsessing about injustice in the world, whether the, it's a wrong done to you or done to someone else? Are you deviating into impure thoughts? Are you wallowing in what's filthy? Or maybe you're just this kind of person who's just nitpicking on all the little things that are wrong with the world, everything that's defective, everything that's incomplete, lacking, inadequate. Paul says, think instead about what's true, what's honorable, what's just, pure, lovely, gracious, excellent, and worthy of praise. Now, lastly, Paul says that what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. We're told here to follow Paul's godly example, 
and the reward of doing so is that the God of peace will be with us. I can't imagine a better, more certain, more confident way to face life's trials than to do it with the God of peace by my side. And if we're told to live like Paul did, we need to know how he lived. And we talked about some of this already, but I would say that the defining feature of how he lived was he did so with his eyes on the prize. He outlines this in the previous passage, Philippians 3, where he describes that everything that he had, um, all the privileges that he gave up, and he says that he counted them all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus his Lord, and if possible, obtaining the resurrection from the dead. Um, I mentioned also what he says in Romans 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And he explains his thinking about it in Philippians 4, in the passage in front of us. He says that he's learned, in whatever state he is, to be content. He knows how to be abased, and he knows how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Paul's spirit, amid his suffering, uncertainty, and eventual death for Christ, was that he could handle anything with Christ's strength. And so we should seek that same contentment that, he, that Paul had. And contentment doesn't mean that we don't aspire to better things. It doesn't mean that if you're getting Bs, you shouldn't try to get As. What it does mean, though, is wherever you're standing, whatever your circumstances are, you need to be at peace with them. Are you at peace with where you stand? Are you at peace with what God's given you? You certainly should be. If he's given you salvation and the promise of eternal life, you should be at peace with that. But if you're someone that's always restless because you're reaching out, grasping toward the things that you don't have, you're not at peace. You're not content. And it's a little bit difficult here when we're told to imitate Paul because Paul's not in front of us. He, he was in front of the Philippians. Um, they knew him. He, he could say, you've seen me, you've heard me, what you've received from me, do it and God will be with you. But Paul also says in the previous passage, he says, join in imitating me and mark those who so live as you have an example in us. And so I just wanted to give a, a small illustration for me about why, why this passage meant something to me. And it was from, from when I was in high school. And I've, I've been mentioned already, you know, the idea of first world problems. I apologize, this is a very first world problem story, but that's, that's my life. So this is, that's what you get today. Um, I was in high school and I was working a couple jobs in the summer. Um, I had a, a day job um, picking pine cones from trees and a night job um, working at uh, the local buffet restaurant, which shall remain nameless. Um, and in, after a few you know, back-to-back days of, of long hours um, doing both jobs, um, I was heading back uh, to work at the, at the, at the restaurant um, and I found myself kind of zoning off at the wheel. I was driving my parents' car. I thought, you know, if I, if I keep doing this, I'm going to get into an accident. Well, I kept doing it. Um, the next block, I ran a red light and woke up to see a Suburban um, flying into me. And as the, the Suburban crashed into my car, and my car went hurtling into a telephone pole, there was probably about one second um, that I had to think. And the, the thought I had was not fear for my life or my safety, but it was, oh my gosh, how are my parents going to pay for this? And and I hit, the, I hit the pole, and I stepped out of the car, and I, was, and I was okay, and the other driver was yelling at the stupid teenage kid who you know, couldn't pay attention to where he was driving and was probably stoned. And pretty soon, my parents drove down to the scene of the accident, and um, I was worried because I'd seen enough movies to know that when, when you crash dad's car, um, 
he's none too pleased and he kind of takes it out on you. Um, and I was worried what he was going to do. And I probably should have known better, but he, he got there and he just came out and he said, well, we're just glad to see you're okay. And that was all he said about it. All he felt he needed to. I thought, what's wrong with this guy? You know, because I knew that I didn't have that peace. I knew that I couldn't handle that kind of stress. Um, you know, if Alec crashes my car, I'm not going to be that gracious to him. But it made me look at him and it made me want the same kind of peace that he had. Um, and I think he has that peace because he knows what matters. And he knows um, that especially this little first world problem is not something that should be knocking you off your faith. So I, I look to him as an example. Um, I, I've seen him since that time suffer much greater setbacks and disappointments than the loss of a car. Um, but he suffered it with the same peace, with the same grace, um, and he's continued to be an example. And so I'd encourage each of you, as, as you find pe- examples of people who have that extraordinary calm in their life, do what Paul says and look at them, imitate them and imitate their faith. So now that that we've talked through sort of the the, the desire of these commands, the reason that we should want the kind of life that that Paul describes here, I'd like to speak about the duty. It's it's hopefully a pleasant experience to think about what what your life would be like if you were always rejoicing, freed from your anxieties, forbearing, thinking about good things. So now take stock of your life of where it stands. Take a measurement of the distance and the difference between the zero anxiety life of constant joy that Paul describes and where you're at now. Because that difference is the measure of your disobedience. Let's be clear about that. If God says live up here and you're down here, the difference is the measure of your disobedience. Now, the good news about it is that you have the power to obey. And the other good news about it is that if you obey, it's gonna be great. But if you're not obeying, you need to start. This may be blessed, but it's a command. It's not guidelines that Paul is giving here. They're not suggestions. They're not options for you to respectfully weigh and consider in your informed discretion. They are mandatory. Naturally, we have excuses for why we don't really have to obey what Paul's saying here. You say, well, you don't don't know what I'm facing. You don't know the trials I'm going through. I may not, and they may be much more severe than anything I've ever suffered but I can tell you that they're not more severe than everything Paul suffered. And if Paul was able to stand there and not only tell people to do it, but to say that he was an example of how it ought to be done, then you know that it's possible. And you know that if God promises the strength to Paul to do that, the same strength of his Holy Spirit is available to you. You may say that there's a problem of of the chemistry of your brain or of your body that prevents you from, from obeying here. Maybe there's a you know, a problem with the serotonin in your brain, um, you've been diagnosed with, with clinical depression, um, you're, you've sought medical treatment for it, you're, um, you're taking Zoloft or Abilify or any of these, these medications. Um, and you say that, well, I, I can't be expected to do this. I have a medical condition. It's, it's in my nature that I can't, I can't do this. Well, for what it's worth, in my, in my day job, I defend major pharmaceutical companies about many of these antidepressants. And as an attorney, I have a duty not to disparage the products of my clients publicly, so I won't. But I will tell you that Jesus is a lot better than Zoloft. Jesus is a lot better than Abilify. Jesus and the power that he offers outweighs whatever chemistry in your brain, whatever natural limitations you have. He came here to redeem those natural limitations. He came here 
to fix them. He came here to make you holy, and he gives you the power to do that. He commands you to do it. Now, maybe you just want more. Maybe, maybe you're parsing what's in the commands here, and you say, wait a second. I'm realizing that you know, what's commanded and offered here is joy and peace, but God's not saying I'm gonna get what I'm, I want. That's right. We're, we're not promised that we're gonna be comfortable and wealthy. In fact, Paul says we should expect to be hungry. We're, not, we're promised that we're gonna be free from anxiety, but we're not promised that we're gonna be free from the things that make us anxious. It doesn't say make your request be made known to God and you'll get um, satisfying interpersonal relationships, you know, uh, a premium healthcare plan with zero deductible and an Amazon Prime membership. You know, he says that you're just gonna get peace. We're not promised that we're gonna get an easy death at an old age after a satisfying and fruitful life. In fact, we could be like Paul, or, or even worse, like Christ, where we have to suffer shame and indignity and die for the faith. But most of all, we're not promised that we get our way or that we get to be in charge. In fact, everything here assumes the reality that we are not in charge, he is. But if you're disappointed at the fact that, that these, these material blessings are not on offer here, I want, you, I want you to keep in mind that nothing else in the world can promise those things either. There's nothing in human history, there's no doctrine, no program, no government that's ever been able to guarantee um, these outcomes. There's been many that have promised, there's been many that have tried, but like Ozymandias, they're washed away to the sands of history. What we do get is much better than just granting of our requests. We get peace because God is in control and he is far better suited to answer our real needs not our imagined or requested ones than we are. This is something that Paul explains in Romans 8, where he says that he works all things together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so you may not get the things that you're expecting in the short term. You may not get the things that you asked for, asked for fervently of God. But what you will get is the guarantee that God will work it together for good, and you will get peace. And all of these things are much better fundamentally than our view that if we were the decision makers here, that we could decide it better. So last, I wanna talk about the, the power to obey. If you've realized that you want these blessed commands, and if you've realized that you have to do them, the only question left is how do you do it? Well, before anything else, you need to clear the decks and make sure that you've confessed your sins to God. Paul was able to write about these blessed commands, about the, this life of joy and peace, to the Philippians. But his letter to the Corinthians and his letter to the Galatians um, isn't quite as rosy, because there's a lot of remedial work that needed to be done. And if you're more like the Corinthians or the Galatians, then maybe you're not quite in the position yet where this is a realistic thing for you. So if any of you are sleeping with your father's wife, I ask that you please knock that off first, and then we can get on to the righteousness that's called for us here. And in humor notwithstanding, there's plenty else that could be hindering you from this life of joy and peace. Paul outlines some of it in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, as the works of the flesh. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. So if you find that you're caught up in internet porn, if you're constantly jealous of those who have more than you do or have what you think is rightfully yours, 
If you view everything in your life as us versus them, if you burst out in anger when something doesn't go your way, or if you can't turn down a third and fourth drink, then you may have more to confess and dig out of first before you can start thinking about uh, this freedom from anxiety and this joy that's promised here. And beyond that, it may just be that maybe you're not in, into one of, those, uh, one of those works of the flesh, but your life just isn't generally meeting the standards that are described here. You're not constantly joyful. You're constantly complaining. You are not uh, forbearing. You're holding grudges against people. You're not uh, at peace. You're beset with anxiety. Well, if that's the case too, then confess that as sin. Bring that before God. We're promised in the letter of 1 John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all unrighteousness. So that is the good news here, is that all that it takes is for you to get down on your knees for 30 seconds and admit that you have not lived up to the life that God called you to. And if you do that, you'll be freed from the debt of sin from your actions. And if you're freed from that, you are in a position where you can start looking at these blessed commands and move forward with them. Now, when you've got that task before you, um, there's often a temptation, as, as with any task that you're, that's before you, is to sort of handle it like a man, just be really stoic about it, and then you say, I'm just going to suck it up and be joyful. Well, if you have that outlook, that's, that's a mistake in at least a couple respects. First of all, it's really just another attempt to be in control. And in control is the reason that you're in this problem in the first place. Your desire to be in control is the reason that you're anxious. You have to accept that you are not in control and that God is, that he runs this show. And this is something that Paul mentions himself in this passage in the concluding verse. He says, um, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. It's God that provides the power for you to obey. It's not you that provides the power to obey. The verse, I can do all things in him who strengthens me, it really, despite what you might see on Facebook, it's not really about running a marathon with one leg or earning a medical degree while being blind. It's more about your ability to do the things that are commanded of you and are set forth for you to do in this passage here. God gives us strength to be joyful, strength to forbear, strength for peace and for contentment. If you're hoping to just buckle down and handle it yourself, you might get some short-term success, but long-term it's probably gonna be a travesty. My grandfather often tells the story of people who come to him after some serious moral collapse in their life. And they tell him, they say, Jim, I tried to be a Christian. And he says, well, that was your first mistake. The joy and the otherworldly peace that we are commanded and promised here, it's not possible on our own strength. It's possible only on his. Trust him to give it to you, and he will. Ask him for it. He's promised it to you. He, he says you have to do it. He's not a tyrant who puts commands out in front of us that are impossible to obey. He's a gracious God who wants us to be right with him and who empowers us to do so and who purchased the power to do that through the death of his son. He will do it. The second mistake of this stoic approach of just buckling down and handling it is that it really fails to understand the reasons for, for the joy and peace that are promised here. Paul emphasizes in this passage that our hearts and minds are to be kept in Christ Jesus. So it's important to understand why joy and peace naturally follow in this situation. Because to most people, joy and peace seem completely unnatural in the midst of trials. 
joy and peace seem irrational. The world will look at you and they'll say, why on earth are you not freaking out? Are you not lashing out? Are you not holding people accountable for what's going on? But the joy and peace actually flows logically here. It flows from what Christ has done for us and what he has promised to do. Every one of us has done wrong, grievously, to our parents, our siblings, our spouses, our coworkers, our friends, our enemies, many others. That sin has broken the world, and for it we have deserved death. But he paid the debt of our sin himself so that we do not have to. And if we declare our bankruptcy to him, he discharges us from that debt through the death of his son. And we are promised to an inheritance in heaven where the brokenness of this world is going to be put right and these imperishable bodies are going to be swallowed up by life everlasting. If you really believe that, it should transform you. Every day, you should be thinking about what's been done for you and about what's in store for you. Um, our old pastor back east used to tell this, this story. Um, he told it a lot, but it's is a good one, so I'm going, to, I'm going to repeat it here. He says that this is like imagining t- two different jobs. And suppose you had a job that was just grueling drudgery, backbreaking labor, um, you know, 20 hours a day. And you had to do it every day for a year. And at the end of the year, you were going to be paid $20,000. Every day of the year, you're going to be miserable. Every day, you're going to be cursing your life, um, can't stand a moment of it, waiting for it to be over. But suppose instead that you have to do that same job, but instead of $20,000 at the end of the year, you're going to be paid a billion dollars. How does that change your outlook with what you're looking forward to? You're going to whistle while you work. That 20 hours a day of backbreaking drudgery because of what's in store for you, you're just going to be making sure that you make the boss happy and you do a good job. You know, it's not going to be something you're complaining about because of what's in store for you and what's guaranteed for you by the death of Jesus Christ. So do you really believe it? Or maybe you only believe it sometimes, and other times you feel more like this world is about your rights and your expectations that have not been met. Well, if that's the case, you're double-minded. And James talks about this. He says that a double-minded man cannot expect to receive anything from the Lord. If you only nominally acknowledge God, but you really think that the norm of this life is your rule and your control, you're going to be continue to be mired in despair, anxiety, discontent, and anger. But if you're willing to admit that he's in charge, you can expect, as a natural and logical consequence of that belief, joy, peace, and contentment as you look to the life hereafter. So if you've got your heart and mind in Christ, if you're accepting his control and thinking about what it means, you'll be ready whenever the real challenge hits. Now for me, um, just to return to the theme of first world problems, my life has been thoroughly first world problems. And I think I've managed to handle those problems with joy and peace, and I'm grateful to God for that. Um, But I know at the same time that that puts me in a little bit of a difficult position because I don't have the trials that I've I've gone through to show that I handled them righteously. So I'd like to end with a story about another lawyer, Horatio Spafford, who uh, went through much greater trials than I did. Um, He was an attorney in the 1800s, and um, he lost all of his wealth in the Chicago fire of 1871. And then two years later, he wanted to send his family over to England to hear, um, I think it was, um, I think it was Moody preaching in England. And so he sent them over ahead of him on, on a steamship. 
and the steamship hit another and it sunk. And Spafford's wife um, and all four daughters were on board. All four daughters died and only his wife um, lived. She sent him a telegram from England to say that she was alive and he went over to meet her as soon as he heard. And while he was crossing over to England, um, over the same place where the ship had sunk, he wrote, it is well with my soul. And so you can imagine as he's looking at the waters and he see, you know, sorrows like sea billows roll, the sorrows that he's thinking of in that situation. But what does he conclude with in the third and fourth verse of that hymn? He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And the Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And as much as I like to conclude on that note, the duty of candor requires me to tell you that Horatio Spafford went a little bit loopy after he wrote that hymn and he started a cult and his wife um, said some awful things about marriage. So don't do that. Be like 1873 Horatio Spafford. He had the right outlook then. He should have held on to it. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this time together this morning. We pray that we'll be able to reflect in our lives every day on what you've done for us and what you've promised us. We pray that that belief, that truth, would inform everything that we do and that we live lives of joy and peace and contentment. In your son's name, amen.